Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, January 30th, 2023. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So uh, we, like everybody else, reeling from uh, footage that I hope I I'm sorry I had to see and that anybody had to see this horrible uh, beating and uh, killing of Tyree Nickel in Memphis by five cops who spent uh i think uh, somebody counted that um in the course of his uh first stoppage then his he went away and they found him again uh the cops issued something like 70 different orders to him often contradicting each other as they were ordering him to do things put your hands up put your hands down put your hands on the car put your hands on your head that kind of thing uh as they then got angrier and angrier and and were actually openly uh um praising themselves for having started to beat him and deliver haymakers on him while he screamed so we're back in this syndrome which we have an extreme crime an extreme act of police lawlessness and what looks like they've been charged with them um, second degree murder. And it certainly looks like second degree murder. Um, And it, it is horrifying by virtue of the fact that it is so extreme, not it's not, it's, it's out of the ordinary and entirely uh, unprecedented. And yet we are being asked at the same time to to view it as a representative act of the interaction between police officers and black people in the United States. And there is some huge cognitive dissonance there. Uh, even among people who are inclined to believe that, uh, you know, ACAB and we need to cut funding for the police, it's they're forced to twist themselves into pretzels trying to explain why it is that five black officers um, beating a, a black uh, suspect to death uh, is an act of white supremacy. Not that they're not willing to do it because they are. So um, please. Well, can I, I, one of the, it's, it's really, it's truly horrifying what, what, was in that footage and um again it's it's really it, it's good to remind listeners that that the system in this case so far has worked in terms of the justice system right these these officers were immediately fired they were charged they were indicted um i think all but one of them is out on a very high bail that was set and they will go to trial um the questions about policing and training are legitimate we should it's it's a conversation this country's been having for a very long time what are they were part of a specialized unit in some cities specialized units have have um certainly exceeded their their authority and and become kind of a menace to the neighborhoods they're supposed to protect and police in other cases those specialized units have led to drastic reductions in crime in certain in certain parts of the country where they've functioned as uh, uh, very good uh, upholding law and order and also working with the community. So I think blanket statements about policing are something that partisans on the side of uh, defunding or or uh, abolishing the police love to have. And we even see this in in elite in the elite, you know, sort of journalistic institutions love to love to parrot this whenever there's one of these attacks or, or horrifying murders as well. So you see in The New Yorker, Jill Lepore, who's a Harvard professor, citing a, a paper that was incorrect to suggest that two thirds of Americans between the ages of 15 and 34 who went to the ER did so because of police related um, violence, you know, that they were attacked by the police this is completely false. And she tries to use these uh, sort of misleading statistics, incorrect statistics in this case, as a springboard to say policing is broken. We have to totally overhaul policing. Now, you can have an argument about how we can change policing in this country. That's a perfectly legitimate argument to have. But to use this egregious case of of absolutely sociopathic levels of violence by law enforcement 
as as a as a stand in for how most cops do their job is incorrect and wrong. And you see all over the news, all these people here in D.C., we have a bunch of them saying we're going to police our own neighborhoods. We're going to do it with compassion. We don't need cops at all. This is what it's kind of a milder version of what we saw post George Floyd, not the correct response to what happened here. There are definitely important conversations to have about law enforcement as a result of this this episode. And and I feel that his poor family, I mean, they are like they have tried and actually done really well sort of telling people, look, let's let's not have riots. Let's not have any of the things that often happen in these cases. But this is wrong to, to suggest that this is how cops all over the country behave is totally false. Yeah, I think it might be a, a little misleading to identify the people we're talking about who are trying to frame this in racial terms, clinging to it with in increasing desperation as the narrative gets away from them. Again, everybody who's seen this video, unfortunately, is knows what they're looking at. And the justice system is appropriate and the police departments are appropriately appalled and moving towards prosecuting these individuals as they should. But I don't think it's necessarily helpful to say, well, what that what people who are doing this want is to see this reform or that policy, um, because it's policy reforms are precluded by the arguments they're making. Folks like at the Washington Post and Forbes, where they're like yeah, trying wait, to wait, hand wait. wave off. Please, please, please. Exp that's a very important point. Yeah. So please focus on that. So trying to the, get there. Yeah. Why does the theory, why does their reversion to theory completely negate any effort at having a policy conversation about how to fix things that might be broken in police departments. Well, to survey the arguments in places like the Washington Post, which is a news report, not an opinion piece, but then arguments by Jan Van Jones and the Washington, or I'm sorry, CNN and others. Um, I think I'll end up compiling these in a blog post later, uh, argue that these uh, police were the executors of institutional and cultural racism, uh, meaning institutional, cultural and structural racism, sorry, uh, meaning Essentially, if you get down into the meat of their arguments, that these mentalities and the institutions in which they're uh, they're a part are immune to reform because the reform can't come from the institution. The reform has to come in your heart first, has to come in your head first, um, which is a sort of a backwards order of these things and precludes the idea that you can have any sort of uh, negotiated legislative reform that would uh, that would address the problem that they're trying to identify. The problem is psychological and like van jones is saying for example i mean like you say christine there's actually some real misleading a lot of effort to mislead here van jones writes you know white the narrative shouldn't be that white cop kills unarmed black man should never have been the sole lens through which we look at episodes of police violence and that's right it's 100 percent right um but then he goes on to say well it's hard to imagine five cops beating any other white person to death under similar circumstances his failure of imagination is not my own all you need to do is survey the the landscape of the headlines last couple of weeks alone white person was beaten by police in in uh louisiana i'm sorry not louisiana um worcester louisiana a uh, very disturbed uh nonverbal autistic child was murdered killed not murdered killed by police uh in louisiana and that just happened like this week um there is a problem when it comes to police violence i don't know if there's a solution to it legislatively but they're not making arguments that would support any sort of legislative or executive level reform to address what they claim is the problem. The problem is the structure itself, the institution itself. Well, that's and their claim, right? Their claim right. is that, Abe, is that um, anyone wearing a uniform, this, by the way, is also the claim uh, that uh, exonerated people who committed atrocities in say Vietnam or the people who committed the horrors in the prison in Iraq in 2003 and 2004 by dint of the fact that they were government employees by dint of the fact that they were wearing a uniform either a police uniform or a military uniform what they were doing was acting as the collective expression of the local government or the United States government and that collective expression is uh, genocidal uh, in in its root, and you know we, we we live right at this moment. Hulu has brought out a documentary series based on the 1619 project, which was is the most extensive effort to kind of retail this uh, and retrofit American history to fit this idea that the country was born out of a genocidal hostility toward 
people with dark skin and that it has structured itself and it has added mythos and uh, fantasy, uh, positive fantasy to cover the, its tracks, which is that it's basically built on the backs of black people and that here we are 240 years after the um, almost 250 years after the, the Declaration of Independence and uh, it is still open season on on black people. Yeah, I mean, the the one thing that really um, trips up this whole approach uh, is uh, are the statistics. Um, they can look. There's no question that w what what all of us saw in this video, and we've seen in other videos. But I think this is actually <clears throat> sort of singularly singularly horrific video in that. I think what makes this 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 video different is that often we see um, whatever problem arises between the police and the person they're questioning or pulling over. It's a matter of escalation and uh, and what goes wrong as things uh, uh, play out. Um, these guys, this the, these this group of cops, they started at. Um, some sort of insane level they were the it was the the point was to inflict violence from the start and you know overwhelmingly there's this there's this idea that i generally agree with that like whatever goes on um in an encounter with a, with a cop don't run don't don't you know cooperate and don't run and then and 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 things won't escalate i have to say in this case the gamble that he took running was right I well, mean, they because... were giving him contradictory orders constantly. Like there was no way for him to actually comply with what they were telling him to do. Yeah, they had forfeited any any right to actual authority, and like he he had every reason to think I, I, there's no there's no way listening to them is going to is going to help me in this case. Anyway, all all that said, I, I want to say that if you look at the uh, uh, statistics, um, that about police violent police encounters with with unarmed Black Americans. Year after year, it's it's the the numbers are roughly it's between about 15, 15 and twenty <clears throat> uh, unarmed Black Americans are uh, uh, shot and killed by by police officers. Um, there are upward of forty million Black Americans. Um, this is whatever this is. It's not a genocide, and it's it's mathematically absurd to make any of these individual cases a stand-in for a larger psychological reality. It's a crime that should be prosecuted in, in the institutions that we have that prosecute crimes. I don't want to, before we get down into the minutiae of this case, I don't want to, I don't want to um, not uh, focus on what John was saying earlier, because it reminded me of this exchange that I had with New York Times uh, opinion writer Jamel Bowie a couple of years ago around the structural racism notion because the remedy to structural racism is the structure right i mean if you really believe in that the institution is the remedy as well as the problem because there is no other remedy and um i remember um buoy coming out of me and say oh wow congratulations you rediscovered the arguments that every civil rights leader made you know 50 years ago R right but i didn't forget them you did you're the one who's not making the argument that the tools to reform these institutions are there within the institutions are there within the documents that you that you deride, that you have such little esteem for. Um, that's an argument that you've forgotten and need to be re reminded of. What is the other alternative? What is the other argument that would address the problem, that would reform the institution to your satisfaction? But that's the point. They don't want to reform anything. These are revolutionaries. Reform is the, uh, is the antidote to revolution. If you say, look, there's a very specific problem here. For example... Memphis uh, panicked about a rising crime rate starts uh, a special unit within the police department to go into high crime neighborhoods called Scorpion. They incept it in 2021. And apparently, or I mean, we don't really know yet, but I mean, the, the story is that they relaxed their standards for admission into this unit. And they may, in relaxing their standards, have let in a bunch of people who who's uh, who are uh, to not psychopaths who wouldn't uh, clear another bar and you know we at least have one uh, one of the five uh we are told was a prison guard in 2016 and was brought up on charges of having roughed up a prisoner in his in his um uh custody 
so th- that's a reform, right? It's like, okay, this 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 scorpion unit is a bad idea. Uh, it was it was poorly conceived. It's been in place for a year and a half. And look, its greatest fruit is this, you know, nightmarish horror. And we're going to disband it. But then well, you're going to say okay, those, those men were only they'd only been on the job for a few years and they were put into an elite unit. That also doesn't right. make sense. Right. Right. So they disband it. And then then the Memphis police, uh, the PD and the mayor and everyone can say, we took action. We've disbanded this unit. We understand that there is a there is a problem that it's a disease. The, the approach is diseased and led to something that is intolerable. And we are not only going after the police, we are going to restructure our department in the wake of this one incident. So seriously, do we take it? That will not satisfy that reform will is a smokescreen to the people who say the problem here is systemic racism and america and american social injustice to say nothing of the communities that are being policed why did why was this unit formed in the first place right the chief Police created chief carolyn it. davis has created, created quote it. basically out of an outcry from the community right because they had stopped policing these dangerous neighborhoods which subsequently became more dangerous as a result of this lack of a police presence and why was there a lack of a police presence because the very people who want this unit disbanded said you got to stop policing these neighborhoods yeah, Look, the homicide I, rate in Memphis yeah. has skyrocketed in recent years, and it was a response to that. And she created yeah. this unit. The problem, of course, is that just as we know that more police in dangerous neighborhoods decreases crime, you have to actually make sure you're training your police officers and punishing them when they exceed their authority for policing to work properly. I mean, this is the police this have to be very, policed too. This is a very important point in this sense. So 50 years ago, in the wake of a corruption scandal in the New York Police Department, you know, by Lee's the largest police department in the country. And of course, was in 50 years ago doing a uniquely incompetent job of dealing with crime in, in New York City, which was skyrocketing. Uh, and then it turned out that a an investigation of corruption, the NAP Commission revealed, you know, that the makeup of the police department was not, the police department did not exist for the furtherance of an effort to reduce crime. It was a nepotistic, multi-generational family institution. You know, m- most police officers do, were were themselves relatives of or children of or grandchildren of policemen. These were these were jobs that, you know, were passed along. Um, and the training was very sparse. And uh, in the wake of the NAP Commission and uh, reforms were made, and in the wake of a lot of other stuff in the 1970s and 1980s, New York police officers are trained to a fairly well for months from the police academy on to when they become rookies and on that. And they are trained and trained and trained. And they are trained in the proper use of firearms to the extent that the number of times that a New York City police officer pulls his gun in say you know in in the period of low crime pulls his gun is a tenth to a fiftieth as frequently as guns were pulled in the in the in the old days uh inter interactions with uh citizens are they are schooled in how to conduct themselves and and this is a very big thing uh the department does not hold with the you better pay me respect doctrine, which apparently played some role in what might have gone on with Tyree Nickel, which is that when somebody doesn't do what the cop tells them to do, the cop, it starts turning into an alpha male war. And the cop is like, you do, you go prone, you be prostate, you now, so in some ways, that's important if you're worried that someone's armed, you need to disarm them because they so they don't come after you. But there's also a human psychology element here where police officers, something is engaged in them, you know, as I say, sort of like alpha betaism or, you know, and and they and they start getting enraged because somebody like Tyree Nichols is like, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. You know, why are you doing this to me? And then they're like, put your hands behind your back, put your hands on your head, you know. 
you're not doing what I'm telling you to. And he's like, I don't know what you're asking me. You're telling me to do three different things at once. And they're like, don't disrespect me with your, you know, shut your mouth. Um, yeah. To no. get people out of that mindset so that they don't, they, they don't go there. They don't escalate in that way. That is a training issue. These are young men. Mostly they're in their, they're in their early to mid twenties. You know, they need to be seasoned in human interactions and uh I, I it appears at the very least that was not the case in this case but we have examples of police departments that revolutionized themselves with this understanding that all of this stuff can be taught it can be taught and it's part of the professionalization of policing but there's also this is important because de-escalation tactics actually work. We know this. We we you know you can train officers in both in physical de-escalation, so where you can restrain someone without hurting them, you can talk talk them out of stuff before it becomes physical. All of these are known techniques that that law enforcement should use. What's interesting is that when you have these elite units, um, I was remembering there was a unit in Atlanta, an anti-drug unit, late 80s, early 90s in Atlanta called Red Dog. And they were notorious. It was largely African-American cops and they were supposed to go into neighborhoods where there was a lot of drug trade. And, and they were notorious for just roughing people up, you know, just just for no reason. Just they were it was and it, it very much sounds like some of the uh, stuff you're describing, John. The interesting thing is that was a, the, if you want to talk about systemic issues in policing, the systemic issue. And I think this might also apply in Memphis is that crime rises. Citizens are concerned. They're angry. They're fearful. They go to their city councils. They go to their mayors. They're like, do something. These units are often formed as a res political response to that demand. And the, it, so they can say, look, we have this special scorpion unit. We have this special red dog unit. We're going to send them out into these dangerous neighborhoods. They're going to crack skulls. They're going to they're going to bring crime down. What they actually do is kind of destroy police in some cases when they when they do when they behave abominably, as, as this unit did. They destroy any little tiny filament of trust that the community might have had in law enforcement. And as Noah pointed out. Often it's the communities coming to law enforcement saying we need more help, we need more policing. So these units, in a weird way, are a kind of band-aid over this this larger problem that criminal justice scholars have shown us takes time. It takes time to actually form those relationships and to have these tactics work in communities. Um, and the distrust then is broken with one incident. And so it's a very fragile balance that has to be established. And good good uh, leaders in law enforcement know this, but. It's much easier, I think, with the pr political pressure they face in their communities to just, you know, create an elite unit that goes around cracking skulls. Well, I think what, what's clear from the video <clears throat> is that um, these guys were acting in accordance with a kind of group pathology that that kicks in. Um, you know, they're in this elite group. They give them a scary name uh, and they have a reputation and they're there to impress one another. Um, and um, it, it, just like a real one-off sickness that we're talking about here that doesn't really bear on police work, I don't think, in any city uh, overall. I mean, you also have to wonder, it's like this guy was pulled over for driving recklessly, right? Or th th that seems to be the claim. Supposedly. Supposedly. Right. That was the okay. claim. Yes. Why are I mean, this this goes to the unit and its behavior and its training and all that. Why are if what they're there for is to spread out in bad neighborhoods and prevent crime? Why are five guys on one guy in a car? Were there three guys in the car? No. Were there four guys in the car? No. Why are they all collecting in, a, in an individual spot and then circling one per you know they have the monopoly on violence now granted they don't know whether tyree nickel has a gun or not or a knife or not but um it's overkill from the minute that they that the confrontation starts there do not need to be five officers facing down a single person and that is not that's that's you know you don't need you know sort of like a uh you know a platoon to go after an individual guy that's also bad policing but i think the larger point part of this also because you guys mentioned this is um when uh police departments uh got known particularly in mid-century and later for using uh for being uh brutal and i think here about the los angeles police department so los angeles is an unbelievably spread out 
city, right? I mean, it sort of covers like, you know, the square footage of a couple of states practically, like practically Rhode Island, you know, in, in, in some in some senses. And they had a really small police department, you know, they had like, I don't know, 8,000 officers, 7,000 officers. A lot of them were on the desks and stuff like that. And in bad neighborhoods and places like that, it became the axiom that one of the ways that they could enforce the law, protect themselves and keep keep crime down was by developing the reputation of like, you don't want these guys to catch you. This is, you know, before Miranda and before sort of like some of the revolutions and civil liberties for prisoners. It's like, if they get you, they're just going to beat the crap out of you while they take you to jail. And we saw some of that revive itself in Baltimore in the last 20 years when Baltimore spun out of control. And when that when Freddie Gray died in police custody, being driven around that neighborhood in the back of the truck, um, this was not an uncommon kind of behavior because Baltimore police were trying to get the word out that uh, it was not free run of the mill for, for violent criminals. Like they, they were going to do what it was necessary to do to get these guys and to pacify them. And, you know, that's really horrible. It's a horrible, you know, it gets back to the idea that if we're going to give these people monopoly on the use of force, they have to be trained in the responsibility that attaches to being given the monopoly on the use of force. Otherwise, you find yourself in this these 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 positions. But I mean, Abe finally made the most important point. You said fourteen or fifteen unarmed black men die in police custody. Um, I think it's. I mean, I think the last year in our a piece that Will Riley wrote for us. I think. Uh, after uh, George Floyd, I think that 19 uh, to 2019, I think it was nine across across the entire United States. Um, police have been discharging their guns in greater numbers than they than they were before, in part because of the crime, uh, you know, jump uh, since 2019. But it's still the case that these are wildly exceptional moments, and we are once again being pushed into a position where we are trying to define present day reality by the most extreme events. And we're not trying to do it. It's being done to us and for, and for, for a strict ideological purpose, which is to say the communities in which these crime spikes are happening, that the cops are, you know, responding to, and doing these horrible things they are not responsible they are part of us they are part of an unjust system in which even if they behave properly they're going to get killed so what's the point and how can you blame how can you blame them and i don't think anybody is blaming them collectively i'm certainly not blaming them collectively but there is a kind of effort to excuse them collectively on the grounds that they live in a totalitarian, unjust society that wants them dead. And that's an infamous and monstrous message. It's a terrible mess, a horrible thing to be retailed for people in minority communities because it 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 creates a despair, a sense of isolation, a sense that, you know, that they they will not be rewarded for their hard work or they will not be their lives will not be made better by by, you know, living upstanding crime-free you know and 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 uh proper lives and so you then sort of encourage the idea that people should do whatever they feel like they should do because they're going to get screwed anyway um with that let me let me go to discuss an organization who that teaches exactly the opposite of the doctrine that i just uh that I just laid out, uh, not the, the doctrine. Uh, this is the doctrine of personal responsibility and connection to uh, traditions and uh, greatnesses larger and older than their own. I'm talking about the Tikva Fund, because do you know an 11th, uh, 10th, 11th or 12th grader with a passion for ideas interested in a life changing summer of learning, conversation, fellowship and debate? The two-week Tikva Scholars Program is for them in 2023. Students can choose from two sessions that fit with their summer plans. June 26th to July 6th, 
or July 31st to August 10th. Now in its 12th year, high schoolers from all over the U.S. and as far as Brazil, Australia, France, and Israel come together to form a vibrant community of exceptional students immersing themselves in the study and debate of Jewish thought, philosophy, politics, and the greatest texts in the Jewish and Western canon. They'll delve deeper into diverse fields such as bioethics, law, and economics, and they'll learn more about Israel as a political, moral, and military miracle, all at the highest level in small discussion-based college-style seminars. Your team will form lasting friendships in a close community of the next generation of Jewish leaders, staying in the dorms at Mount Holyoke College in the heart of New England and getting a taste of what it's like to live on a college campus. Teachers include leading college professors, scholars, journalists, and media commentary columnists for commentary like Christine Rosen, who live with the students at Mount Holyoke and develop special relationships with not only the seminars, but during meals and other fun activities outside the classroom. So look, visit tikvasummer.org. That's T-I-K-V-A-H summer.org to learn more and apply today before the deadline at the end of this month, January 31st, and use promo code commentary to get $200 off tuition. Again, that's tikvasummer.org, T-I-K-V-A-H, summer.org. Speaking of Israel, uh, many different dramatic things are going on in relation to Israel. Horrible, monstrous, evil event uh, Friday night, Kabbalat Shabbat, a, a um, 21-year-old gunman shot seven, uh, killed seven and wounded, I think, 10 or 12 more um, people uh, in synagogue celebrating the coming of the Sabbath uh, in East Jerusalem, um, uh, a, an event that led to the shooting off of fireworks and rejoicing and jubilation. Uh, in Arab neighborhoods and on the West Bank and in Gaza. Uh, the next day, uh, Israel executed um, a very daring uh, drone strike on uh, Iranian military facilities uh, that apparently must have taken place from inside Iran, meaning that they had somehow pre-placed or gotten, um, gotten people into Iran and shot off drones inside Iran that caused very specific and apparently very significant damage, laser-like damage to some of these facilities. We don't know quite what they were doing or what they were targeting, but we'll probably find out. And today, Monday, uh, Secretary of State Blinken arrived in Jerusalem for a day of meetings with the new Netanyahu government. Of course, what you, what the media want to tell you that these meetings are all about how to de-escalate and don't diffuse tensions and how how is Israel talking about its Supreme Court and its political actions toward its Supreme Court. And I my guess is that uh, Tony Blinken isn't there for that purpose, though he will, of course, say that he's there. And I'm sure he'll say pointed things in the course of the day to make sure that Bibi Netanyahu knows that, you know, Joe Biden has stupid, as stupid ideas about Israel as he has about other foreign policy things. But nonetheless, there's a lot going on with the Abraham Accords, with the, with the, with, um, with this, uh, uh, the, this effort to pressure Iran. And it does appear that the United States government is involved in some way, shape or form with some of these strikes, which represents a about turn, about face, and a real swing away from the first two years of the Biden administration and its idiotic pursuit of a return to the Iran deal, uh, quixotic and foolish, uh, always bound for failure. And now that it's, you know, now that it's well and truly dead in the wake of the Iranian protests and other things, um, putting putting proper pressure on Iran not to and particularly by the way on Iran not to not to start supplying Russia with things that we don't want Russia to be supplied with uh in the war in Ukraine uh so it's a very it's a, it, an interesting weekend let's just say and the the coverage from the media which unfortunately has to be talked about it's you know long-standing reality in places like the new york times that 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 the story is um that this is that when there's violence against israelis it's it's has to do with 
you know, the, the supposed cycle of violence uh, whereby, you know, Israel has recently conducted a, 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 a raid uh, um, on uh, Palestinian militants, which are described as sort of Palestinian innocents uh, in the in the in the paper. And, and this is a, a simple uh, revenge for that. But I think there's something different now. Um, I'm used to that. It's as if the new Netanyahu government with that in place, everything can be blamed on that. Um, and there is um, no break on um, what you can say about it and and how and how um, damaging and evil and awful it is. It, it, it kind of reminds it kind of feels like a little bit of a sort of holdover from Trump uh, in the sense that the media had decided at a certain point um we must we must pile on whatever we can in criticism uh of this administration and so um sort of every story time new york times story that 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 i've that i've read uh, uh trying to cover what's been going on in israel over the over the weekend is really about how this is all sort of um due to the escalation uh of tensions uh, uh, Israeli-Palestinian uh, tensions, owing to Netanyahu's far-right government. You get that yeah, from that... the coverage of the Iran uh, strike too. Uh, I, I personally was unaware of the degree to which this had been happening with a lot of regularity under the the coalition government that was not right-wing. Um, a a June twenty twenty-one drone strike, strike a year ago, a May twenty twenty-two strike, all in Iranian facilities, all un- underemphasized by, not emphasized rather by Jerusalem and Tehran, in part because of what John says, that most likely these were originate from within Iran, which is humiliating. Don't necessarily want to uh, emphasize that. It doesn't serve as a very clean cast spelling. Um, but yeah, you get the sense that this is getting that kind of coverage that it that these strikes did not because it is happening under a right-wing government. Well, and the, the, the most egregious story I read over the weekend was the uh, Patrick Kingsley's report in the New York Times about the reaction... Um, uh, among the Palestinians. And the the headline of that, the online version of the headline is, as Israelis grieve, some Palestinians exult and some fear what's next. So he's making, he's suggesting that, well, you know, there are these mixed feelings among the Palestinians. Palestinians. Yes, some of them are exulting and saying this, these, you know, these people are heroes celebrating in the streets, but some fear what's next. Okay, so some fear what's next, meaning any sort of reaction by the Israeli government to this terroristic violence. Um, they try to suggest that, oh, you know, there are mixed feelings about Israel among the Palestinians. But in fact, if you look at who he talked to and the direct quotes on the record from the family members of, of these terrorists, they're proud. They say so. They're like, we're proud. They did exactly what we want them to do. Everyone in the neighborhood is proud of them. Um, you know, we expect this. This is this is what we're supposed to do. I mean, absolutely no sense of, of empathy for their fellow human beings. No sense of anything other than that they are in the right, their cause is just, and they'll continue to do it. The only little bit of, of sort of thoughtful reflection he got on the record were people saying, well, it would be bad for our neighborhood if there was another intifada because then you know the military would be in here and our houses might be destroyed. But it's so clearly trying to paint people who raise their children and their grandchildren in a culture of violent terroristic uh a worldview that's that says their entire purpose in life is to slaughter other human beings because of their difference to pray not to praise that but to be like yeah okay so this is their world let's treat it with respect i don't think the new york times would do that if they went to the middle of nowhere in idaho and found a like a gun-toting cult of end times preppers who you know love trump and were raising their children to hate anyone on the on the blue in the blue states i don't think they'd be treated with this sort of gentle loving empathy like like we see the times covering these are these are neighborhoods that are fostering. It's like, I mean, people say death cult. This is the closest thing you get to a death cult. These children, there was a 13 year old who shot and in another neighborhood who shot at Israeli soldiers. They are being raised to, to kill their fellow human beings for a religious purpose. So you can have a lot of debates about what's going on in the Middle East. But this the media kind of serving up on a platter, this sort of narrative is is it's appalling. Um. So the sequence of events is that last week, so there's a new government in Israel, and the new government in Israel, as is true of all governments, whether their Bibi is at the head of them, or or Naftali Bennett is at the head of them, or uh, your Lapid is at the head of them, or whatever, uh, as the government comes into focus, the Palestinians test 
There are different Palestinians. There's no such thing as the Palestinians. There's there's Palestinians God, yeah, who are Hamas, Hamas Palestinians. There are Palestinians who are mostly under the sway of um, the Palestinian Authority and Mahmoud Abbas. There are the Hezbollah. There's the Hezbollah Palestinians uh, in Lebanon. And then there are the Arab citizens of Israel who live in some of these areas. And there are four different very that they have different approaches and they have different things going on. And Janine, which is a refugee camp, which is a city that is remains a UN run refugee camp on the West Bank. Um, in the early last week, the new Israeli government as a show of its seriousness in preventing the rise of what people are calling the third intifada more street action and terrorist action aimed directly at Israeli civilians uh, using uh, bombs manufactured, uh, you know, on in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Lebanon. Um, they interdicted a, pl a plot. It's like right out of the fourth season of Fauda currently uh, airing on Netflix. They, inter they interdicted a plot and killed seven uh, people in a bomb factory who were who were making bombs in Janine, which is where which was the epicenter of the second intifada from 2000 to 2003. Janine was was where the bombs were being manufactured, being strapped to people's bodies who were then blowing themselves up. And this that happened on it. Tuesday, Friday came these came this, you know, absolutely horrible shooting. And suddenly we have, as you say, this bizarre parallel between an explicit military action against a bomb factory a bomb factory that takes out the bomb manufacturers and a 21 year old shooting up jews going into a synagogue and that that is a tit-for-tat response so they blow up people who are making bombs they shoot people who are making bombs and the kid goes and he shoots up people carrying palaces and babies to a synagogue uh in a an impoverished neighborhood of jerusalem uh all, you know religious jews and that's okay says patrick kingsley because you know these are people who are likely to be supporters of Itamar Ben-Gavir, the radical new Israeli minister, uh, part of the party that surprisingly won 14 out of the 120 seats in the Israeli Knesset. Because, you know, uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir used to have a poster of Baruch Goldstein, uh, the monstrous and evil man who shot up a Hebron uh, in 1995 on his wall, which is despicable. And, uh, and uh, he's taken it down um but you know uh you know he has he has these al sharpton like qualities on on the other side uh you know provocateur supporting illegal and and reprehensible behavior and he deserves all the criticism that he gets but whatever he did he didn't shoot up he didn't you know the the, the he may say I I, I want to show you that I'm not PC and I like, you know, people who take a stand for the state of Israel, even if they do something despicable or maybe doesn't think it's despicable. But he didn't take the gun and he didn't shoot anybody. And this kid shot somebody and his family is celebrating his martyrdom. And uh, the New York Times is accepting this narrative. Uh, Patrick Kingsley, whom they hired away from The Guardian, which should tell you everything that you need to know about Patrick Kingsley and The New York Times uh, and the fact that they used to be uh, more ginger and more careful about this matter because they had a constituency that wasn't, you know, just simply going to go along with with such things. So they would at least couch it or be more careful about it. And now that they are, you know, run essentially by their six million commie subscribers, now it's totally fine to have. Uh, you know, defamatory and frankly anti-Zionist, uh, you know, out and out anti-Zionist statements like the kinds that Patrick Kingsley has been making this weekend in, in response to this. Um, that said, um, I think it's important to note, as I say, that um, we this is not 
Obama 2.0. Blinken did not go to Israel and get on the plane and say, I'm going there to open a mouth and yell at Bibi Netanyahu for his bad behavior. He said, I wanted we everybody should de-escalate and we should de-escalate things and you know, caution restraint and all of that. But he's clearly there because they have business to discuss, and the business has to do with what's going to go to Ukraine, what training can Israel provide, what are they doing together on Iran to keep the Iranians from transshipping stuff to Russia and stuff like that. Like even here, there's more serious business to conduct. And that itself is a sea change in the way all of this is is being pursued. If if I'm right, and if it keeps going this way, which is, look, all things being equal, we're big libs. We want there to be a Palestinian state, and everything should be nice, and then blah blah blah. But um, we're we're living in the world as it is. Things are very dangerous. The 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 Iranians are being irredentist and dangerous, and we got this one ally there who actually can take measures and take steps. And also knows how to do a lot of things that the Ukrainians need. And I we may need them to come help us train them to do certain types of things. You know, let's keep the let's keep this relationship going and not host and not descend into hostility. Blinken would not be going there six weeks into the formation of the government if what he wanted to do was establish hostilities. That's not why a Secretary of State visits a country. Uh well. Uh, it's it's why Secretary of State used to visit. I mean, because what you're describing is exactly well, Hillary, what, yeah. what or John Kerry would go. Would, right. would, but would that go was to two Israel. years in, right? They're two or yeah. four years in. Yeah. And of course, yeah, John Kerry went to do to do idiot shuttle. I, mean, I know I'm using the word idiot a lot here today, but I mean, like moron shuttle diplomacy to end the, you know, like had Kissinger envy and wanted to do shuttle diplomacy to end the Gaza war, which ended when Israel won it. And not because John Kerry was flying, you know, between Gaza and Israel, which is three miles apart from each other. Um, clown, uh, you know, like like that stuff or 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 Obama sending Hillary to yell at Bibi or even Biden you know, to yell at Bibi because Biden was somehow mistreated when Biden went to visit. Um, but as I say, this is a more we're we're in a we're in a we're in a much less becalmed situation in this very uh busy place and there frankly isn't much for america to do to pursue or help the palestinians pursue their dream of a two-state solution since the palestinians don't have a dream of a two-state solution they don't want a two-state solution they reject a two-state solution this is a delusion on the part of western liberals who want them to want what they want but they they either want everything or nothing they either want to be the you know the victims of the last 200 years or they want to destroy you know the great miracle of the 20th century they're not going to destroy israel so they're going to remain the losers and there's going to be this whole body of opinion that cries bitter crocodile tears about them and they're the ones who are responsible for their condition and how are they going to rally support with you know the people they need to rally support for if they're going around shooting people on their way to synagogue. Well, they have plenty of support still here in Congress. Rashida Tlaib is, you know, she's she's got her Palestinian flag planted outside of her office. She's always saying, you know, she had a tweet just a few days ago about I'm never going to stop reminding people in this country that our country is funding an apartheid regime that's killing Palestinian children and families. Um, she's constantly honoring the you know victims of the Janine massacre, telling the truth about the apartheid government. She she is a she's basically free PR for the Palestinians in Congress, and she lies constantly, particularly on social media, just flat out lies um, in order to you know uh, continue this narrative of you know being a spokesperson for for the people. Yeah, well, she is despicable, but she is one of four hundred and thirty five. Yes, um, and of course we'll see what the we'll see what the UN tries to pull and we know and we know by the way that it's not as though we aren't living in a time of rising anti-semitism and excuses being given for anti-semitism and jew hatred and we're this is part and parcel of what patrick kingsley is engaging in in the new york times is this kind of things that were once unthinkable to say well you know what's foster the goose is foster the gander these these people going off to synagogue kind of deserve what they get for being supporters of you know pro- putative supporters of Israel's right or something like that. 
at least that's you know um you know so th there is that going on but um there are also cross currents and there is the, there are the facts on the ground in Israel which is that there is no two state solution in the offing the palestinians have not created conditions under which israel can negotiate with them i maintain as i've maintained my entire adult life that if a sadat arose among the palestinians and went to you know went to drove drove across the city uh, you know, into the Knesset and said, let's make peace. There would be peace in 48 hours. What with the whom? peace looked like. But with whom? But, yeah, I mean, I'm a broken Israel. record on this, but there is no two-state solution because there are no two states. If you were to right. if you were to be dropped in from space and look at these two distinct polities with distinct foreign policies, distinct governments, distinct economies, you would say these are two different nations. Speaking you're referring of West to Gaza, Bank and Gaza Strip. West Bank and Gaza, right. But what I'm saying is, if if the mindset among Palestinians were to magically change, which it is not going to, so this is just a thought experiment, would Israel, this evil apartheid state that wants to crush the Palestinians under their heel, how would Israel respond if there was a serious gesture of peace from the Palestinians? There would be a Palestinian state. Now... 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 40 years from now. And there will inevitably be some kind of Palestinian state, in my view. And there could have been 20 years ago, uh, 23 years ago at Camp David. Uh, and Yasser Arafat looked at a choice and decided to start a war, a terror war, rather than accept the terms that he was being offered by by Ehud Barak and by, and by Bill Clinton. So that that was the la that was the moment that broke the Israeli left and that broke the fantasy of the two state solution, as a matter of practical reality, it broke the Israeli left forever. You know the Israeli the the, the dominate the dominating party of Israel's first fifty years, the Labor Party, barely exists anymore because it put all of its chips on Oslo and on the two-state solution, and the result of their putting all their chips on it in 1993 was a terror war that killed more than a thousand people and and sent the country into a trauma, paroxysms of trauma for three years, um, and the country has not recovered from it. And po politically, they can't come up with arguments that say, just ignore what happened. We we'll just ignore what happened and go ahead. They don't even have an interlocutor, which is Noah's point. They don't have anybody to talk to. There is no one to talk to about making a state, no matter what the New York Times' preposterous delusional fantasies are. Um, so I guess that's our show. Uh, we will reconvene tomorrow for Abe, Christine, and Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.